a bit more of Nehemiah. For those of you who are visiting us, I, when I'm preaching, well, each of us when we preach, we preach through different books of the Bible, and uh, I've been going at it for some time, flicking between the Old and the New Testament, and uh, we're, we've gone to Nehemiah. And I want to ask you a question. Uh, is there a prayer that you offer that gets you? Now, you may not... You may be an emotional kind of person. You may be like me, who has got something that's just died inside, and I don't quite cry. But uh, no, I haven't. Doesn't died inside. I'm just not a crier. But there are things that move us, whether it's to tears or just move us. Is there something that you pray, and maybe it's so big that you you can't find the words to pray it, but you just ah, oh, you just want God to do it. It may be. Uh, something that is to do with the world, maybe, maybe to do with climate, maybe to do with injustice, maybe to do with war, it may be something to do with this community, maybe a group of people that are on your heart or on your mind. It may be a specific thing in your relationships, in your family, amongst your friends, someone that is on your heart and you've prayed for for many, many years. It may be that it has seemed and seems impossible. And you just cry, God, God, why? Come on. And, you, and it's gone on for a long, long time. But it's something you've prayed for persistently. That is, if you like, where we're going to begin. This experience is the experience of Nehemiah. I'll recap in a moment how uh, we got there in the first chapter and why Nehemiah feels this stuff. But I guess many of us feel this. Now, I want to park that. Where shall I park it? I'll park it over here. And I want to show you a video. We're going to show two or three videos which are from the LICC, which is to do... Uh, with a course that we use in our church. We've shown it several times in different contexts. We do it uh, in our Living the Life, which is about being a person of God Tuesday, Thursday, Friday, wherever we are, and the struggles of that. And hopefully, as we look at Nehemiah chapter 2, that screen and this video will merge. If not, you can have your money back. a day, six days a week, whenever I'm needed, every Saturday morning, I spend my time in a place that matters to God, with people that matter to God, my front line, in the stresses, successes, problem solving, tantrum resolving, <laughs> laughter, Teamwork. Jokes. Tears. Boredom. Tension. Cups of coffee. Cans of Coke. God is working with me. He helps me see what he sees. Put here by God. He knows the day ahead. 
This place is rich with possibilities. This is my front line. Now, if you've been in our church for a while, you'll have seen that, that and some of the other videos before, but they're quite important in trying to underline how we marry the big things in life that we're concerned with, with the day-to-day -day humdrum of what we do. Nehemiah is a book in the Old Testament, and we're going to start in chapter 2 and see where we got. Just a reminder of chapter 1 and a confession. I need to confess uh, that um, when I was explaining chapter 1, I got confused in my numbers, and uh, it was helpfully pointed out to me uh, that I'd done my maths completely wrong. So the book of Nehemiah, it comes 140 years, not what I said last time, it comes 140 years after the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, this time of Ezekiel and Daniel. And so the people of God had lost their, their place, they'd lost their security, they'd lost their sense of God being with them, and many of them had been taken into exile and often into slavery. Uh, many, many miles away in a place called Babylon. Time has passed, and Babylon has been uh, overrun itself by another empire, the Persian Empire. And what we're going to read over the next few weeks is coming uh, a bit, uh, about 90 years after people had begun to return. The book of Ezra, which was what we were doing a few uh, years ago in the Old Testament, is talking about the beginning of the return and the rebuilding of the temple and the rebuilding of Jerusalem. But things have gone wrong and it's got stuck. For those of you who remember uh, Deb's series in Esther, we're about 30 years after that. And if you remember in Ezra, halfway through Ezra, Ezra himself appears, so he's not in the first part of the book. Uh, and he goes because things have got stuck and it, the, the, the rebuilding and the rededication has all gone awry. And that is the context of Nehemiah where he learns about what is going on in Jerusalem, which is hundreds of miles. He's never been there. This is the place of his great-grandparents, but this is the place of his faith. This is the place of his identity. This is where he feels he belongs. And he's heard that the walls have been broken down and the place is overrun. It's not an independent country and it's a laughing stock of the nations around. It's a disgrace. It's a disgrace to God. It's a disgrace to the people. And the temple is, is not being used properly because it's, it's all been uh, unprotected. And uh, he grieves over this uh, because he feels partly for his people, but also because he feels that God is being humiliated because the temple is not functioning properly and Jerusalem is just uh, overrun. And so he turns to God and he prays. And this is all that we looked at last time. And we looked at the prayer and we used Menti and we interacted and we tried to pray that with him. But he makes this remarkable praise. He says, give your servant success today. And I'm going to come back to that because there is a, a Sunday school thing that lots of us were taught as children about Nehemiah that isn't strictly true. But he ends, and we ended Nehemiah 1, with this phrase, I was a cupbearer to the king. So what does that mean? Well, it meant he carried the cup. Well, what does that mean? It meant that he was a slave 
so he, it's not the career he'd applied for. It wasn't something he grew up and said, all I ever wanted to be is a cupbearer. He's a slave. He's been um, probably the child of a slave, maybe even the grandchild of a slave. He's lived in captivity. But he's probably been a fairly good one. He's worked his way up. Because this is a responsible job. His job is to make sure that the drinks, normally wine, that the king has have not been poisoned. So he's trusted. So he looks after the king's uh, wine cellar and he brings to him, he says, good morning king, good evening king, I recommend this one to you. And the king trusts. Because if you know anything of your ancient history, the poisoning of emperors and kings was a fun game that they did a fair amount. So the, the person who's checking and looking after and protecting the king is an important person. He's trusted. He's grown into this job. And I want to just, although he's a slave... Some of us may feel that we're a slave to work or a slave to our job or a slave to church, uh, to, not to church, to, to, to... Well, maybe you feel that. We'll talk about that afterwards and counsel you. Uh, a slave to school or, or whatever. And so there is an ident- we want to identify that this is his job and he's good at it. He's good at it. He protects the king. And we read in the month of Nisan. Now, this is the, the uh, Persian calendar. It's a different month. It, in fact, is about four months later. What that tells us is that the prayer that we read in chapter one is the prayer that Nehemiah has prayed for four months. Now, you might have prayed a prayer for four years or 40 years, as some of the prayers we see that Jesus answers. The point is that he has not had an instant answer. In a moment, he is going to pray. And sometimes Nehemiah is is branded as the guy who had instant prayer answers. He's sat with his tears and he's wept and he's fasted for four months. Waiting. Waiting for the moment when he felt God would open a door. Waiting for God to do something. And that which God does in our lives comes out of us being soaked in praying, God, will you do something? We do not live in a microwave faith where you press a button and instantly it happens. Most of us get annoyed if our computer takes 10 seconds or our phone takes three seconds. But God, and James tells us this, God deals with seeds that you put in the ground that take months before a little shoot comes up, acorns that take years to become trees. And it may be that somebody once told you that if you pray for this and name it and claim it, God will give it to you straight away, but that's not really the reality of most of what goes on. God is doing things carefully and slowly and profoundly. So I took, he says, the wine and gave it to the king. And I had not been sad in his presence before. For whatever reason, that day he couldn't put on a bright face. And maybe you're used to doing that when you go to work or when you go into the family situation, you go into the community, you put on a smile. For whatever reason, that moment he couldn't put a smile on. 
He's unable to hold it in. And the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? We get this sense of the relationship that has grown between the king and his slave, Nehemiah. This king who knows him. They would have talked about other things, how the king was feeling that day, all the things that were going on. He knew his slave. He knew that he was neither ill nor happy. And not only does he see that, but he wants to know. You know, quite often we see folks that are sad and unhappy, and sometimes we don't want to ask because we don't want to hear, because we haven't got time and whatever it is. But he wants to know, what's wrong, Nehemiah? Why are you grief-stricken? So Nehemiah is known and cared for. And I was very much afraid, Nehemiah said. But I said to the king, it's worth just reminding ourselves about fear. Because again, sometimes religion teaches some really stupid stuff about fear. Courage is not the absence of fear. In fact, you cannot be brave unless you're afraid. And fear is some of the God-given Uh, warning systems to say what you're going to do is dangerous or tricky or needs me. Courage is the ability to know that we're afraid, but rather than let it paralyze us, allow us to do something. It is not the absence, oops, it's not the absence of anxiety, but the willingness to act despite it. We don't blame ourselves for being afraid. But we do challenge ourselves when sometimes that leads to paralysis, to inactivity, to avoidance, or to giving up. He says, I was very much afraid. Very much afraid. Not a little afraid. Not slightly nervous. Not slightly anxious. I was really scared. But... I said to the king, may the king live forever. Always good to be positive and encouraging with people you're going to say something difficult to. Always butter it up with something nice. May the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? He's not afraid to say what is in his heart. There is an integration between what he believes outside of his job and what he's prepared to say when asked inside his job. He's owning up to being a Hebrew, a part of the people of God, to identifying with Jerusalem. He's expressing who he is. There's an honest integration and explanation of what's going on in his life, and we'll come back to that in a minute. And the king said to me, what is it that you want? Now, every time I look at the scriptures in terms of preaching them, I always think of things that, that I would do and that, that, that I don't find in the commentaries. The king said to me, what is it you want? Now, well, how would you answer that prayer? My answer would be, Almighty king who lives forever, You're such a powerful king. Would you send a great, fantastic army? Would you send that army to liberate Jerusalem? 
Would you, king, send your best workmen and build the city again? I would say send an army. This is where our Sunday school comes in. It then tells us that Nehemiah prayed. Why is he prayed? He's already spent four months praying. It is a quick prayer, but it isn't the whole story. We were taught perhaps when we were little in Sunday school that Nehemiah is the guy who just did arrow prayers. He only did arrow prayers after he spent months in prayer. And actually, both things are needed. That there is, a, there is a, a soaking, a preparing of ourselves and of God and of listening. And you'll see in what he's about to say that he's thought a lot in his prayer times about what, if ever, he would do and what he would ask for. Because what he comes up with is obviously thought out. So that's come in his months of prayer. But right now, he needs God to give him clarity and the right words. And not only that, but to give him favor and success in what he is about to say. And I answer the king, if it pleases the king, really tactful and gentle. And if your servant has found favor in his sight... Let him send the biggest army you've ever created, O king, and go and set the people free. No, he says, send me. And I think, Nehemiah, why? Why are you going? Send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. He's prayed and he's prayed and he's prayed. And his prayer is, how can I be part? of solving this. He wants to be involved with what God is doing. He doesn't just want to say, God, you go and do that stuff over there. He wants to be involved. And we'll come back to this in a moment, but very often the things that are on our heart that we pray and pray and pray about, God will say, I want you to be part of dealing with it. Then the king, with the queen sitting beside him, asked me, how long will your journey take? And when will you get back? And if it pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. This king values Nehemiah. He doesn't want him gone forever. He doesn't want to lose him. He wants him to come back. But he so values him that he grants his request. He says he wants him to go and do it as long as he'll come back. Nehemiah has lived such a life as a slave. He's not clearly not been trying to uh, not resent the difficult job that he has, not resent the lack of freedom that he has. He hasn't gone around complaining. He hasn't gone around moaning. He hasn't gone around sabotaging it. He's been so good at it that the king wants him back, but also is prepared to do what he asks. I said to him, if it pleases the king, may I have the letters to the governors of Trans-Euphrates, that's where the pass he's got to, the bit that he's got to travel through, so that they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah. He's got to go hundreds of miles. He's got to go through other territories. He's just a slave. They're going to say, why have you run away? He's a nobody. But he's thought about that, and he needs a letter he needs some ID. He needs something with the king's seal that says, this guy is on my mission. His plan has come from his prayer. 
And may I have a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the royal park, so he will give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple and for the city wall and for the residence I will occupy. He boldly says, can you just give me some stuff as well? King, would you take part in this? Would you provide the resources that I need? But he acknowledges that it is God who does it. It isn't his eloquence. It isn't his plan. It isn't his persuasion. He says, and because the gracious hand of my God was on me, the king granted my requests. What he wants happens not because he's the best, the cleverest, the, the, the most in, uh, intelligent or articulate. It is because God is with him. And so he goes and gave the king's letters. And the king also sent army officers and cavalry with me. Didn't ask for that, but he gets it. So what about our prayer requests? And what about the videos? What about the things that move us to tears that are so important to us? I want to see if we can pull this together for a few minutes before we respond in communion and before Joel leads us together in response. What can we learn from Nehemiah? Firstly, that we need to keep praying. Deb has encouraged us to look at a book from uh, Tyler Statton called uh, Praying Like Monks, Living Like Fools. I want to read you a quote from it. Prayer and spirituality feature participation, the complex participation of God and the human, his will and our wills. Now, he's going to say something a little complicated. He's going to talk about two extremes. And he's going to say, actually, prayer is about participation, about partnership, about being involved. But he's going to talk about one extreme. One extreme is this. We do not abandon ourselves to the stream of grace and drown in the ocean of love, losing identity. What is he saying? He's saying that we don't just go to church and and just pray, Lord, how wonderful you are, how wonderful that you love me, how fantastic is my life. And we ignore that over here is Jerusalem in ruins. We ignore the suffering of the world, of climate change, of refugees, of war, of cost of living, and we just have our happy, clappy time. He says that's not what prayer is. Prayer is not forgetting all that is wrong in the world because we're in the presence of God having a great time. That's not what prayer is. Neither, he says, do we pull the strings, activate God's operation in our lives, subjecting God to an assertive our assertive identity. We neither manipulate God nor are manipulated by him. What does he mean? He says prayer isn't forgetting the world and just experiencing God's love. Neither is it being able to control God and get him to do all the things that we want, like he's some kind of uh, genie. And we name it and we claim it and we pray the right way with the right technique, with the right amount of faith, and God does exactly what we want. He says Neither of those things in totality are what prayer is. There's a bit of being in God's love and there's a bit of God answering us. But he's talking about something else. He says we are involved in the action and participate in its results, but do not control or define it. And this is what Nehemiah is doing when he says, send me. He's not saying, Lord, I thank you that I'm okay. Nor is he saying, 
Lord, will you go and sort out Jerusalem while I stay here? He's saying, Lord, send me. Participation. And we are involved in the answers to our prayers. We'll explore that in a sec, what that might mean. Eugene Peterson in The Constant of Prayer, which is a quote also that um, Tyler Stanton uses in his book that we're studying together. The assumption of spirituality is that always God is doing something before I know it. So the task is not to get God to do something I think needs to be done, but to become aware of what God is doing so that I can respond to it and participate and take delight in it. In other words, it is God that has put on his heart that Jerusalem is in ruins. It is God that has put on our heart that prayer that we cry over, that we keep praying. It's God that's put that longing in us that we might be involved. Not that God is the slot machine and we say the prayer and forget about it, nor that God is our personal guru who just looks after us, finds us a parking space. But God is someone who is saying, I want you to care about what's going on and see what I am doing and join in with it. So we see ourselves as part of the answer. So what is God putting on our hearts to pray for? And who then might we be being asked to care about? And what's that going to look like? How's it going to affect our wallets and our finances and our giving? Because God has put a nation or God has put an issue God has put something in our heart that we long to see different. And who are we going to stand up for and articulate God's purposes for? And how are we going to set an example? How are we going to change the atmosphere and create the transformation that we want to see? We want someone to come to faith. How is God asking us to live that they might say, I want what you have? What love are we to demonstrate to the people we long to see transformed? To the nation, to the workplace, to the school, to the street, to the neighbors, to the family. What mercy are we to enact? What demonstration of the character of God is he saying, I've put it on your heart and I want you to be part of it. What lifestyle are we to model? And we know that we can do nothing without God. It was because of the gracious hand. It's not our work, it's not our effort It's a dependence on God. Another quote from uh, the book. Jesus teaches us to include the phrase, give us in our prayers. Daily, as we ask, he weans us off our addiction to independence, our insistence on living under the illusion what we most deeply desire, we can feed ourselves all on our own. He's saying, we are, why does Nehemiah say that prayer instantly before he speaks? He says it because he knows he can't do it without God. And God invites us to pray for our daily bread every day. The things that we think we can provide is actually an illusion because something can go wrong any minute and we can't provide it. And he says, look, just accept 
our dependence on God. Our requests are not the spoiled whining of a child or the shaking change cup of a beggar. Daily bread prayers are a daily reminder that we are not in charge, not in control. Prayer replaces control with trust. It's difficult. You may not be a slave, but your job, your work situation, your family life, your relationships may be difficult. And we pray because here's the news, we're not in control. Prayer replaces control with trust. A God-given desire is only fulfilled by God-given means. Let's watch a bit more of a video. Evening comes. Lay tasks to rest. Thoughts reflecting on the day. The gifts you give. The people you trust me with. What an honour it is to work within your plan. You know my name. For the work you give me, your strength sustains. Yet I am more to you than instrument. I am son, daughter, friend. In my inmost, knit to you. Inseparable. Invaluable. Loved. Celebrated. Heard. Pursued. Grace abounding. Found in you. My work could not win this gift from you. So God invites us to partner with him in a broken world and puts on our heart the things that we want and yearn to see that are different. And Nehemiah didn't hide his faith, faith or his, when he was asked, why are you sad? He said, he told him. And so we need to be honest when we're asked that, yeah, we follow a different God. We walk to a different tune. We follow Jesus. We want to be disciples, that we believe in mercy and grace, that we're people of the cross, that we're people who believe in the transformation that comes through forgiveness, not condemnation, that we are people of justice. Now, there may be that we live in a situation for years and nobody ever notices or asks us. But when it comes, we're able to say, no, I believe that every human being is born in the image of God and has equal value. That we believe in compassion and generosity, that we believe that we have a responsibility to care for the stranger, for the hungry, for the poor among us. That we believe in church, that we believe in the community of people that gather together and encourage each other and go out together and create a place of welcome and of help as the body of Christ, that we believe in gratitude, that we believe in saying, we love you, Jesus, and we're grateful for all that you've done, that we believe in worship because we believe in God's love and we believe in prayer. These are not things that we keep for Sunday. They're not things that we crowbar into conversations that are unnatural, embarrassing, and awkward, but these are things that are just who we are. So let me explain that a little bit more. 
We wait to be asked questions. Nehemiah for four months went in and served the king. The day after he heard of the news, he went in and served the king, but it wasn't the right moment. And he waited. And what are the questions that we might be asked? We might be asked, well, why do you love the unlovable? Why do you look after that person in our class or that person in our street or that person, that client, that patient, that student who is irritating, who is difficult? Why do you help with the gap with young people that are on the edge? Why do you show mercy? Why don't you join in the clamor of condemnation and of canceling other people? Why do you live differently? Why is your tone on the internet different to other people's? Why do you act justly? Why is it that you in the workplace aren't bending the rules, aren't fixing things so that you get a little bit more out of it? Why do you give generously? Why are you, when there's a collection for somebody's birthday, why do you put more in than anybody else? Why do you give money to the church? Why do you give 10% of what you have away? Why do you have hope in a world of wildfires, of politicians who seem untrustworthy? Why are you still filled with hope? Why do you go to church? We haven't hidden who we are. What did you do yesterday? I went to church. What was it like? A bit weird, but I liked it. We let people know who we are and they may not ask for months or years, but why do you go? And why do you pray? I've heard you say a number of times that you'll pray for us. Why do you do that? We may say that for years. I'll pray about that. And nobody picks us up on it. And we go, why doesn't anybody notice that I say I'll pray for them? And then one moment somebody says, why do you pray? Or maybe the question that we're asked is, why don't you? Why don't you hate? Why don't you judge? Why don't you bend the rules? Why don't you spend more on yourself? Why don't you complain? Why don't you give up on faith? Why don't you blame God? We live a life of integrity. As Nehemiah lived a life which meant the king wanted to know what was going on. We live a life of integrity. And we answer the questions with prayer and with courage. And we've lived such a life that when we answer those questions, people are prepared to listen. And maybe that takes years. But we've done our best. We've worked hard. We've served others. We haven't complained. We haven't moaned. We've done what we could. We've been honest. We've been compassionate. We've been uncomplaining. Because here's the killer passage. From the New Testament. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. It's not the boss, it's not the company, it's not the family, it's not the neighbors, it's not our partners, it's Jesus. And the boss or the neighbor or the family or the partner may irritate the heck out of us. But we're doing it for Jesus. And when we do it for Jesus, at some point somebody's going to say, why? 
We're going to tend to spend some time responding in communion together and in worship together. Two questions for us to reflect on. How might God want us to be part of the answer to our prayers? How might he be asking us to live differently or just to carry on living that way? And how might we live more intentionally at work or in the community to inspire respect and partnership? Maybe we hate work. Maybe we hate the days that we live because family is difficult, health is difficult, neighbours are difficult, friends are difficult. Maybe we feel a slave. And Nehemiah served that king as if he was serving Jesus. And the result is that what Nehemiah had had God put on his heart, he wanted to be part of, and God enabled that to happen. Another video. Uh, Perhaps Joel and the others will come and join me. Father, help me do good today. I want to shape this place to your design. Help me see the value my work has to you. May I model your kindness and patience. So that you are recognised. Yeah, good. May they know Jesus through my presence. May they see your light as I share mine. Give me your joy and self-control. So that your warmth touches those I meet. Help me to be generous. Quick to put others first. Sharing clearly your love and grace. Give me words to speak about you. And courage to stand for justice and truth. Whatever the day brings. In my humanity, weakness, breakthrough. Let my life overflow with you.